Today, we're speaking to Jeffrey Bowman, author of a new book in the Outward Odyssey series, all about Apollo 17 Command Module pilot Ron Evan. Yep, Ronnie's one of our favorites, so pretty excited about that. Plus, we'll get you up to date with all the news from the world of spaceflight. As always, please do get involved with us on our social networks. We're at Space and Things One on Twitter and at Space and Things Podcast on Instagram and Facebook, and we love hearing from you. Yep, please keep the memes coming in, but right now, please enjoy episode 64 of the Space and Things Podcast. I'm Emily Carney. And I'm Dave Charles, and welcome to episode 64. Emily, how was Huntsville? Tell me about it. It was amazing. I, I, I've been there before, but every time I go, you know, I always find little surprises around the corner because uh, the U.S. Space and Rocket Center is so amazing. I had a wonderful time. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to say any names, but I actually got uh, a chance to go in a, on, on Marshall property, and I got to see... Uh, some pretty neat stuff. I saw the test stands. I saw the Redstone test stands and the old Saturn shuttles test stands. And I saw the uh, the Nerva engine. No that's way. parked out there. Yes. Anything with Nerva. It's like, whoa, that's so cool. It's a nuclear rocket engine. Like, that's the ultimate. <laughs> yeah, ab- absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that's that's pretty crazy. So, so are the Marshall Tours open up to the public again, or is that something a little bit exclusive that you got? They are not open to the public. So somebody gave me a, I'm not going to say who it was, but somebody uh, very politely uh, who has access to that area. Sorted you out. Yeah, drove me around. So Friends in high places. Lovely. We love to hear it. <laughs> Um, yeah. Of course, we did uh, we did an episode on Huntsville, but way back episode ten, which means it was over a year ago. Yeah. Crazy. Anyway, I'll put a link to that episode in the show notes for anyone who wants to find out a little bit more about Huntsville and the U.S. Rocket and Space Center, which is a must visit for any space fan, in my opinion. But anyway, I think it's time to get going with this show. Yes. And so we move on to our discussion with author Jeffrey Bowman about one of our Apollo heroes, Ron Evans. Now, he was the command module pilot for Apollo 17, the last crewed flight to the moon. Evans not only performed his duties with great skill, he also did so with an enthusiasm, which we didn't see too often from the other astronauts. On the way to the launch pad, for example, he jumped for joy in his suit. And while performing his deep space spacewalk on the way back from the moon, he exclaimed, hot diggity dog, uh, followed by <laughs> excitedly saying, talk about being a spaceman, this is it. Uh, I actually love this guy. Yes, I love him. He's amazing. Um, Evans was born in 1933 in Kansas and excelled both academically and athletically in school. He went on to earn a degree in electrical engineering at the University of Kansas and a Master of Science degree in aeronautical engineering from the U.S. Naval Postgraduate School. Evans was a naval aviator and flew hundreds of missions off the deck of the USS Ticonderoga during the Vietnam War, and it was while on that ship he would find out he had been selected by NASA to be in the fifth group of astronauts in 1966. He was part of the support crews for Apollo 1, 7, and 11 before being assigned to the backup crew for Apollo 14, which would lead him to become the prime crew, part of the prime crew for Apollo 17. 
He was the backup commander for the Apollo Soyuz mission in 1975 and helped out on the development of the space shuttle before retiring from NASA in March 1977 to pursue a business career. Unfortunately, Evans died of a heart attack in his sleep on April 7th, 1990, and he was just 56 years old. Mm, too young. Too young. Yep. Now, Jeffrey Bowman's new book about Evans is called A Long Voyage to the Moon, The Life of Naval Aviator and Apollo 17 Astronaut Ron Evans, and features a foreword by fellow astronaut Jack Lausmer. The book is one of the Outward Odyssey books published by the University of Nebraska Press. Now, this series, known as A People's History of Spaceflight, features such classic books as The Ultimate Engineer by Richard Jurek, Apollo Pilot by Don Isley, Homestead in Space by David Hitt, Owen Garriott and Joe Kerwin, and Go Flight by Rick Hewson and Milt Heflin, just to name a few. It's a remarkable series which covers so many incredible subjects. Bowman himself is a retired lawyer from Belfast and Northern Ireland. He's a fellow of the British Interplanetary Society and has contributed to the Society's Spaceflight magazine. He is also a regular contributor on Spaceflight to the quarterly magazine of the Irish Astronomical Association. It's really a pleasure to have him talk to us today, so let's get on with the interview. Welcome, Jeffrey Bowman. Thank you so much for coming to join us to talk about this new book you've written about, Ron Evans. Now, of all the Apollo heroes you could have written about, why Ron Evans? How did this book come about? Well, I think one of the points about the Apollo astronauts is, uh, if you think about it, all of the command module pilots tended to get a bit overshadowed mm. by the uh, actions of, of the of the two men who went down onto the surface of the moon. I mean... Our late departed dear friend Michael Collins was one of the few exceptions simply because of the historic nature of Apollo 11. He was, I think, remembered more than most of them. But uh, if you were the guy left in orbit around the moon, while two men were actually being watched on live TV on the surface of the moon, your activities tended to be a bit overlooked. And that's you know, that happened with Ron Evans. Um, but why Ron in particular? Uh, this goes back really to about 2008 when I was asked by Colin Burgess, the managing editor of the Outward Odyssey series published by Nebraska University Press, if I would do some work on a book called Footprints in the Dust. And there were, I think, seven authors in all who wrote about the various uh, lunar landings and other missions as well, including Skylab and Apollo Soyuz. I, I wrote the chapter in Apollo 15 and the chapter in Apollo Soyuz. And uh, Colin must have liked what he saw because after I retired from legal practice in 2017, we'd always kept in touch and he said, well, Jeffrey, now you've retired. Maybe you've got time to do a whole book. And uh, I thought, yeah, why not? Yes, that sounds like a good idea. So we talked over various subjects and uh, Colin actually shared this view about uh, uh, command module pilots. I, I One of the things I suggested was a book about all of the command module pilots, but he mentioned a few names, and Ron Evans' name came up, and I thought, that sounds like a very good idea. Now, I remembered Ron Evans and his contribution to Apollo 17. I wrote about him in my diary at the time, because here, here was a NASA astronaut 
uh, climbing out of his space craft into the depths of space and saying, hot diggity dog, and waving <laughs> to his family. And I thought that was wonderful. I thought, astronauts don't do that sort of thing. But he did. And uh, so I, I certainly remembered Ron. I thought, that sounds like a very interesting project. And uh, I soon discovered that there really wasn't very much information available about Ron. All the usual NASA basic stuff, but no great detail. And most accounts all seem to come from the same source. And so they never said anything new. So it seemed to me that uh, history really needed to be added to. We needed an account of the life and career of Ron Evans. And I thought, I'd love to do this. And it was such a privilege, such a pleasure to be able to delve into the details of Project Apollo and to bring out a lot of information that I think most people just don't know about. Yeah, I think you're right. I think this is a, is a book that definitely needed to be written. Um, now, I just want to go back to something. You said you kept a diary during Apollo 17. So can you explain how you got into spaceflight in the first place? Um, well, yes. Uh, my mother always told me that she held me in her arms and pointed me up into the sky to see Laika in Sputnik 2 passing overhead. Sadly, I don't remember that because I was only two at the time. But uh, that, that was a good start. But I definitely remember um, Yuri Gagarin's flight, Alan Shepard's flight. My father helped me to cut uh, uh, sort of press reports out of the newspapers, and I still have them in a scrapbook. I think one of the things that really got me hooked on this was uh, in 1961, there was a TV series uh, on our TV, TV here yeah. uh, called Pathfinders to Mars with uh, a sequel, Pathfinders to Venus. And I, I was about six or seven when these were on, and it was unbelievably thrilling. Really, and I, just a, as close to terrifying as it would be good for any child to see. Uh, it was real behind-the-sofa stuff, and I loved it. And here was, here, here was space fiction. And at the very same time, uh, Yuri Gagarin flew in space. So here was the real thing and the fiction. And the two were coming together, and I just thought, this is real. This is really going to happen. And I, I just pooped from then on. Awesome. Okay. So Ron Evans, to me, is um, probably one of the most fondly remembered uh, late Apollo-era astronauts. Because I've, I've never heard anybody say a bad word, a bad thing about him. Um, why do you think he's so cool? You know, what do you, what kind of qualities do you made him? Do you think made him like that? Because yeah, I've never heard anybody say, "Oh yeah, I hated that guy," or he was hard to work with, you know, and stuff. And you never heard that about him. Everybody liked him. You're absolutely right. I didn't speak to a single person who had a bad word to say about Ron. Um, you 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 asked me why he was so cool, but of course there, there are different definitions of cool. Uh, and you could say the Beatles were cool. I, I think in this context, we're talking about someone who is sort of unflappable and calm under pressure and gets the job done and just exudes this sense of competence and ability to get the job done without any fuss and to be a really good pair of hands to do the job safely and well. And that, I think, that's how uh, the lead flight director in Apollo 17, Jerry Griffin, described him to me. He said he was uh, one of the coolest guys he had met. 
Well, look, there, there, there is a, there's an interesting sort of uh, point about this because everyone who flew with Ron told me that he, he was quite quiet. Uh, he, he was sometimes jokingly called the, the, the quiet man of the squadron. I find that odd. Compare that with uh, this guy who uh, says hot diggity dog as he goes out on his face walk. <laughs> but I, I think the point was that uh, uh, when you were in difficult and dangerous circumstances, Ron was coolness and calmness personified. But when things were going well, he knew how to enjoy himself. And he really enjoyed Apollo 17, he really enjoyed his space walk. He made it look easy, but anything but easy, but he made it look easy because he knew how to do it so well. So he had the, he, he could not only do it well, but he could enjoy himself while he was doing it. Those who knew him uh, knew him to be great fun to mix with. When he was in the company of friends, people he knew and trusted and respected and liked, he was socially wonderful fun. And one of the best conversations I had was with uh, Gene Cernan's former wife, uh, uh, Barbara Butler, the former Barbara Cernan. And she was, she, she was so fond of Ron and Jan. And uh, she told me some wonderful stories, most of which you hear in the book. And she thought Ron was wonderful. And she said it was just so much fun. In the, in the social situation, he was so much fun to be with. Awesome. Yeah, you definitely get that vibe uh, when you watch videos of him, like someone you definitely would like to hang out with. Um, now, I'd like to move on to his pre-NASA career. And in the book, you talk a lot about his time in Vietnam when he was on board, stationed on board the US Ticonderoga. And of course, you said earlier that there wasn't actually much information about Ron when you first started looking up, looking him up. So how did you recreate these stories? Well, uh, yeah, a, a good question, because... I did, when I was starting my research, I thought, how am I going to find out what Ron did while he was uh, a Navy pilot in the Vietnam War? Who's going to tell me? How am I going to find the pilots? Are there any still left alive? Uh, During my research, I I, uh, managed to contact uh, a gentleman called Dave Cowles, sorry, Dave Cowles from the F8 Crusader Association. And... He circulated my email to any uh, all of the pilots who, who uh, were in contact with me. And I got, I think, nine replies by email within a few days of people saying, you're writing about Ron Evans? I'd love to tell you about Ron Evans. I flew with Ron. Great guy. Let's talk. And uh, I was able to set up interviews with them all by telephone, obviously, but it worked very well. I think I interviewed 10 men who actually flew with Ron, uh, both uh, in peacetime and during the Vietnam War. Uh, there were another two or three who flew with him on the Ticonderoga in different squadrons, who also knew him well. And uh, I think two others who discussed things with me by email. So I got a very full picture. He flew, I think it was 114 uh, combat missions. Wow. Many of those involved flights over North Vietnam when people were trying to shoot him down. And uh, he always said that uh, it's just but for the grace of God that he survived. But, uh, but uh, he made it. And in fact, the squadron, Squadron VF 51, actually, which was also Neil Armstrong's squadron uh, in the uh, Korean War, um, they didn't suffer any loss. Pilots. Wow. 
during the combat phase, but they did suffer one loss on the way home on an unfortunate incident that wasn't actually a wartime loss. Uh, it was a, a bad landing. A young pilot made a bad landing, uh, and debris killed one of the uh, members of the squadron on the deck. Oh and wow! That was uh, uh, just near the end when they thought they'd made it without any casualties. Oh no, that's not good. So. Talk, tell us a bit about what it was like to talk to Ron's widow, uh, Jan. The one thing I noticed about the book is it really is just a love story because they were one of the Apollo couples that, you know, stayed married and they seemed very much in love throughout their entire marriage, you know, and when he uh, died very young, it was just like, this is just a crime. So tell us what it was like to talk to her about Ron. Talking to John Evans was just such a pleasure. It was, it was wonderful. Uh, I, I, here I was being introduced into the world of Apollo from one of the people who was there all the way through Apollo and you know, was there. It was a first-hand account. And John Evans has the most marvelous memory. Uh, she remembers things that most, I think, of, of her uh, fellow wives and widows. Uh, say, oh, I don't remember anything about that anymore. But John remembers almost everything about it. And it was a real pleasure. And I got to meet her two years ago in 2019. Oh, nice. It was even better talking to her in, you know, in, in real life. But it was really good talking to her on the phone. And if you say that um, this is uh, it's really a, a love story, I think you're absolutely right. Um, when John told me about her first meeting with her, she was staying with a girlfriend near Christmas, uh, uh, her parents were away, and, and this girl phoned Jan and said, look, I'm on my own, do you want to come over for a few days? So Jan came over, and an old school friend of this girl uh, arrived at the house to say hello, I'm back from Navy pilot training, and that was Ron Evans, and that's how it started. I got the impression, I said to Jan afterwards, you know, the way you described that to me, that just sounds like love at first sight. And I, I swear to you, she giggled. Uh, it, she sounded almost like a schoolgirl. She giggled. Oh, and, wow. Uh, I'm quite sure that I was love at first and Oh, fact, wow. Yeah, I, I, I actually think, and I've more or less said this in the book, I think that, um, that when Ron started his Navy training, he was absolutely dedicated and committed to becoming a naval aviator. Nothing was going to stop Ron becoming a naval aviator. Then he met Jan, and for a time, his attention was genuinely distracted because here was this love of flying, and suddenly now found that here was this woman who had just pulled him over. And for a while, he, he, he had to struggle to maintain his concentration, and he did actually fail a, a rather important flying test. He had to be sitting. Fortunately, he got it, but uh, he... He had to sort of work out the correct balance between what had become basically the two loves of his life. Yeah, that's something I can relate to for sure. Now, I'm going to jump forward again now. Um, after his time at NASA, he did a load of different things, and he was also heavily involved with uh, Space Camp at Huntsville, I right? hate to interrupt you, but Don't. I talked to somebody who remembered Ron at Huntsville. No way. It's a friend of mine, uh, Paul, who was a counselor at um, Space Camp, and he told me, uh, Paul Sylvester Stanley, and he was telling me that, like, 
yeah, Ron was like this funny gnome. Like he would show up and he was full of energy and he was, you know, he was like, yeah, he's a little bald guy. And I was like, oh my God. And I was like, and he was like, yeah, he was as awesome as you imagined he was. He was really funny and just, just really energetic. And I was like, oh gosh, that's so wonderful because I'm like, I wish I'd met him. I really wish I had met him as well. But so can I just uh, sort of uh, point one thing out? You said this little bald guy. He certainly was bald. Uh, he wasn't little. Ron was five foot eleven or five foot eleven and a half. He was one of the tallest of tall astronauts. Well, I'm going to assume that Paul Sylvester Stanley is as tall as me, and everyone is small when you're my height. Anyway, <laughs> he was involved in space camp or did help out there when he could, and. It makes me wonder, Jeffrey, what do you think uh, will be Ron Evans's legacy? Well, uh, certainly, I mean, Space Camp was one of many things where uh, he, he, I think most of the Apollo astronauts felt a genuine sense of responsibility after their missions to tell people about it, to tell people what it was like, what the Earth was like from space, what the Moon was like, uh, and about the wonders of their missions. They felt this genuine sense that they, they 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 were obliged to share this but of course it's so much better if, if you enjoy doing it and ron was one of the astronauts who, who actually enjoyed doing public speaking when they were all training they all had a week in the barrel and they had to go out and do public speaking most of them didn't like it but some of them did ron did like it and i think charlie duke liked it so it was quite easy for him after apollo 17 to progress to this period when he would be doing lots of talks, lectures, and things like space camp and uh, talking about it. He just loved doing that. So that, that was that was easy for him. Um, but as far as uh, legacy is concerned, uh, it depends what you mean by legacy. Um, I mean, John certainly uh, agreed with, with one point I made, that uh, the legacy was not as good as he's left children, grandchildren, and now a great-grandchild. And they will remember what he did. That's the personal legacy. But what you're talking about really is uh, how would we remember his contribution to space travel? Obviously, one of the original pioneers. And Apollo 17 would, I think, rightly be described as one of the very best missions of Apollo. And probably the most important thing is Apollo 17 rounded off the series it was the perfect ending for Project Apollo. You could not have had a better ending. And that meant all three crew members did their jobs perfectly. And it was such a success. So, but as far as Ron's part was concerned, obviously not the high profile part that uh, Gene Sermon and Jack Schmidt had, but Ron played a very important part in relation to what they call the big picture. Jack Schmidt obviously shouted out, oh, well, I found orange soil. And they found this orange soil uh, at Shorty Crater. And that's one site. Very important finding, but was that unique? Or was it, could uh, you find that on many parts of the moon? And uh, Ron's observations were intended to find out where there are similar deposits of orange soil around other craters, around the, the rim of the Mary Serenitatis, the Sea of Serenity. And, he made many observations which hinted at some, and I think definitely found uh, lots of other deposits of similar colored material, which were later confirmed by the other two crew members, including, of course, geologist Erickson Schmidt. So Ron was able to show 
on a large scale, this material is not unique to Shorty Crater. It was all over the place. That finding is of current importance because in the last decade and a half, uh, we have discovered from uh, refined analysis of those samples, the orange soil, and the rather similar green glass material in Apollo 15, we've discovered that those contain surprisingly large quantities of water. And that has many implications. Uh, I'm not going to get into a long geological discussion here. I'm not qualified, and I don't think your listeners want to hear that. But uh, it, let's just say it's of ongoing vital importance in studies of the origin of the moon and the refining of water to support future exploration. It's not some dry, dusty observation 50 years ago. It's of ongoing importance. And that, that I think, that scientific legacy from the mission is, is highly important. So tell us a little bit um, about Ron's French. I'm calling him Ron like I know him. Um, about Ron's <laughs> friendships with other astronauts. Um, was there anyone he was maybe put, I noticed Jack Lausma did the foreword of the book. Um, was there anybody he was, was he particularly close to Jack or was there anyone else he was close to? It, it seems to me like everybody liked Ron. Like I know Al Warden really liked Ron. Yes, uh, I, uh, I'm so sorry uh, when I heard that uh, uh, I was passing because uh, I so much enjoyed talking to him about Ron about, about spacewalks, uh, deep space spacewalks, but, uh, one thing that uh, I was slightly surprised by, um, although it made sense when I heard the details, um, Ron lived in the uh, LIGO community, and there were many astronauts there, including, of course, Ian Armstrong, who was a couple of blocks away. Uh, but most of Ron's best friends were basically his, his close neighbors who became close friends. They were mostly engineers working in, in, for NASA or in the uh, aerospace business for contractors. And you might think it's a bit strange that this astronaut's best friends were mostly non-astronauts, but most of the astronauts were away long periods of time. Mm. And it was like ships in the night. Uh, you know, they, one would go away uh, on some assignment, and then he's back and runs away somewhere else. And it might have been weeks when they without seeing each other. Whereas the, the neighbors who were you know, nine to five jobs in the Houston area, they were always there. So uh, they, that's where most of his closest friendships came from. But certainly uh, there were a number of astronauts that he uh, was close to. You mentioned Jack Lansman, certainly uh, Jack. Um, unfortunately, probably the closest astronaut uh, to um, the, uh, his best friend in the astronaut corps, I think at that time, uh, was Paul Weitz. And sadly, Paul Weitz died shortly before I started my research because I think he would have had some wonderful anecdotes. And uh, unfortunately, I never had a chance to speak to him. Yeah, Paul was awesome. I knew him a little bit. I knew him a little from uh, uh, Skylab stuff. I, I can't claim to be like best friends with him, but he was he was wonderful. He was really funny. <laughs> I, I did meet him. I think, yeah, I met him once and I, I found him to be uh, typically modest for, you know, a, a, a very high achiever. Uh, I, he was he was a great guy. Uh, yes. In the short time I got to meet him, and I'm so sorry that I, I didn't get a chance to ask him about Ron. That's awesome that he and Ron were good friends. That's cool. Were, well, you see, they they had studied at uh, the uh, 
uh, Naval Postgraduate Colleges. And of course, then they got uh, uh, selected at the same time. But he was probably Ron's closest friend in, in group five. Um, of course, uh, Ron and Gene Cernan, they were on the Apollo 14 backup crew. And uh, the, the three astronauts and their wives on the Apollo 14 backup crew got very close. They were really good friends. And in fact, Ron called a crew that was very close, not just working together, but good friends. Called them a crew crew. <laughs> and he said there were only two crew crews in Project Apollo. One was Apollo 12, of course, uh, the, the Conrad Gordon and Dean, and the other was the Apollo 14 backup crew. And they were really close and did everything together, uh, both, well, <laughs> as time permitted, uh, they were training for possibly going to the moon uh, as backups. So they, they obviously didn't have a lot of social time, but when they did, they really enjoyed putting themselves together. Fantastic. Such a shame that, that Joe Engel got dropped from that. I know Harrison Smith obviously deserved his place as well, but would would love to have seen Joe Engel on the moon for sure. That, that, well, that's a whole a whole story in itself. And of course, I, I dealt with that in the book. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, the, what I always say about that, and I think everyone has always agreed that it, if only they'd just flown Apollo 18, everybody, yeah. including Dick Warden, uh, could have had their day, you know. But yeah. Uh, it was what it was, and uh, you know. yeah, was what it was. Why stop at eighteen? Keep going, keep going. Anyway, uh, we could have had Fredo on nineteen. Anyway, <laughs> uh, yes, you mentioned that uh, Paul White's may have had some anecdotes if you had been able to talk to him. But I wonder if, through all your research, what's the story which you think really uh, is most crazy about Ron's story? The, the anecdote that I think I find uh, the thing that most. Uh, struck me was uh, when Ron was selected as an astronaut and he was called, the, the, the squadron was called into the ready room on the USS Ticonderoga and they thought it was just to report on their latest sortie. Uh, but in came the captain and said, he said, well, well done on a great mission then. And so just quickly debrief and then said, by, by the way, I've got some rather interesting news here. They read out a telex message confirming that Ron had been selected as an astronaut and everyone rose and cheered and, and sort of dragged Ron up to the front and there was a photograph, there were two photographs of this, which was the only photograph I think of any Apollo astronauts selection actually getting the news out of it. Oh, but yeah. here's the thing, after Ron's selection as a NASA astronaut, what happened? He went back to flying. He had 18 more combat missions, wow. 14 over, quote, enemy airfields and other sites. So he was actually flying multiple missions over North Vietnam, having been selected as a NASA astronaut. And the obvious question is, what would have happened if he'd been shot down? Gene Cernan wrote about this. If you, if you look in Gene Cernan's uh, book, uh, The Last Man on the Moon, he talked about the time after the Apollo 1 disaster, when there was a period of no flying. And many of the naval aviators said, look, we think we should uh, during this level, we think we should volunteer to join in this war, that we're trained to fight and we feel we should be armed. And they were told, well, yes, you can go to Vietnam, you can go to the war, but there's absolutely no way you're going to be allowed to fly in combat. Imagine what would happen if the North Vietnamese shot you down and paraded you as a captured astronaut. 
it wouldn't have taken too much intelligence. It would only have been shot down uh, after it being officially announced in all of the press that he that he was one of the astronauts. He was with the Navy somewhere in the Pacific. It wouldn't have taken a genius to work out that this Ron Evans, uh, the U.S. Navy, uh, was the astronaut who had just been selected. And I just find it mind-boggling that uh, NASA didn't say to the Navy, look, you know, do we really want to have one of our new astronauts uh, sort of being shot down and paraded for publicity purposes by the North Vietnamese? But no one seemed to think about that. And there's no way Ron is going to say, look, you know, I'm a, an important guy now. I, 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 I want to go home. I don't want to be uh, to carry on. He, knew, he had his duty. He still had his uh, tour of duty to complete, and he did. And there was no question of the, the special treatment. So that really uh, struck me as quite remarkable and as unique in the history of NASA astronauts. Yeah, that is absolutely nuts. Um, so, look before we uh, before we sign off. Thank, first of all, thank you so much for joining us to talk about about your book and about Ron. But before we sign off, is there anything else that you uh, you want to share with us or our audience before uh, about Ron or about this experience? Well, very briefly, just that uh, I mean, it, it may sound a bit trite to say this, but it has been a genuine pleasure and a privilege for me. Uh, as an outsider, as a, as a foreigner, uh, not even an American, being able to, to be drawn into the world of Apollo by, by such wonderful people as Jan Evans and, and all, of the, uh, all of the Apollo astronauts who agreed to speak to me and to let me be a part of this and to be drawn into this world for, the, for, for these interviews. Uh, it, it, it's just such a privilege and I never believed as a teenager Sort of like enthusiastically following the Apollo missions, never believed that I would end up writing the biography of one of those men flying to the moon whose exploits I was following. It was wonderful, unbelievable. Yeah, fantastic. Yes. That is awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. And the book is Mar. I'm a little biased because I already read it. The book, I, I absolutely adore it. I, I kind of fell in love with Ron a little bit because he's so like funny and he just seems like a good guy, you know. I think that's it. He was really the, the epitome of the good guy. And that's the perfect way to end. Okay. Let's figure it out. Okay, can you see me now? Roger. Am I in the What a sweet, sweet man. Yes, he is. Uh, I'm so thrilled that we got to interview him about the book because I got the book a few weeks ago. I ordered it the second it came out because I love Ron Evans. Um, I know I sent you this probably about a year ago, the the video of him on YouTube doing like a talk. that Absolutely amazing. Yeah, and he like, I, I watched this talk and he just blew it out of the water. And I'm like, if Ron Evans had shown up at like Space Fest or at any other event where I was speaking, I would just leave. Like I would just be like, you know, no one's gonna be as good as this, so let's just get out of here. <laughs> like nobody, yeah, yeah, yeah. nobody's gonna defeat him. But ser- seriously though, like I-, I was, I've been looking forward to this book for ages, and I think I read it in like one sitting. Wow. Like, and it- it's it's a big book, so I was up like all night just reading it and it, I, I think it's I'm a little biased I think it's wonderful I did review it for the National Space Society and uh, it really 
fills in a, a big hole because Rod Evans is somebody like I've always wanted to know more about because he died really criminally young. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what we got a glimpse of there, which is really quite nice, is how researched this book is. Uh, yes. And also how many people just wanted to be involved. And it was great that he was able to reach out to so many people. And I think it's a real testament to hit, to Ron Evans, how many people really wanted to, to share their stories about him with Jeffrey. So I, w- I will put your book review in the show notes as well as a link to the video uh, that you sent me last year because it really is wonderful. I'm I'm sort of drawing a, a slight parallel to when Falling to Earth came out. Granted, it's a different situation because Al was still alive when Falling to Earth came out. But um, at that time, Al hadn't done a lot of appearances before then. So a lot of people were like, what, whatever happened to Al Warden? You know, is he okay? Mm. And he wrote Falling to Earth, and he put his truth out there. And all of a sudden, it was like, oh my gosh. You know, and he really enjoyed like this sort of a third Resurgence. act. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. this third act of like, you know, where he became very popular. And I'm hoping this book does the same thing for Ron Evans, because he didn't get to enjoy that during his lifetime. But I think he deserves that now, because he was just, he was just awesome. Like he's one of those guys, like whenever I've asked Apollo guys about their colleagues, they all liked him. Like nobody, cause I'm not, I ain't going to mention any names, but there's some people who it's like, I didn't really like working with this person, you know, but Ron, everybody was like, Oh yeah, he was the nicest guy. And he was like a genuinely like a good person, you know, and everybody thought he was really funny. And you can tell that in the uh, video, We've talked about a few times now. He was just really funny. Yes. <laughs> a real space personality. And I think uh, in Jeffrey's research, he's uncovered that as well, the way that people spoke about yeah. him. And this book is amazing. But just how good, Emily, is this Outward Odyssey series of books in Nebraska University Press? It's just amazing, yes. isn't it? I mean, they cover some topics which I don't think other publishers would touch and yet they're important stories and we get to to read about them as a result of what they're doing there and not only that these books look great next to each other as a set they look amazing aesthetically very pleasing so i've still got a few more to get but uh, i love these books i love this series i was about to say that exact those exact words i was like they're aesthetically very pleasing on your bookshelf like they look very nice I got to hand it to Colin Burgess. I hope he's listening. Hey, Colin. Colin Burgess really put together something special. I love that it's a people's history of space flight. It's not yeah. that it's not like um, necessarily a historian's perspective of space flight. It's a people's history, which means there are people who've written books who probably weren't really familiar with the subject and they really had to do a lot of research to be like, OK, this is what I'm talking about, you know, but I think that makes the book better I almost think you have to approach it like that. Does that make sense? So you can sort of get a better, okay, I didn't know what this was, and now I'm really diving into it. Because sometimes I feel like when you know something a little too well, it can, when you explain it, it can get kind of boring, but you feel like you're looking at it through new eyes each time you open one of those books. So uh, I totally agree. So I'm sure many of the people who are listening here have already got many of these books on their bookshelf but if you haven't definitely go and check it out and why not start with this book about ron evans because uh, ron is one of our favorites and and people should know more about him and i'm so glad that this book has been made anyway let's uh let's crack on with the rest of the show uh, do we see you waving? <laughs> 
And so on to this week's news. There have been three launches since our last recording. And as always, links to the videos of these launches can be found in our show notes, which you can find on your podcast app or platform, or just check our website, spaceandthingspodcast.com. We also have an archive of all our old episodes if you want to check those out as well. Now, we had a Vega rocket launch from French Guiana, which was launched by Ariane Space. And we've had two SpaceX Falcon 9 launches from the Space Coast in Florida. The second of these put some Starlink satellites into orbit. But the first one is a very cool launch because it had a crew. The Crew 3 mission has gone into orbit on the 11th of November, and they are on board. Uh, they were on board their Dragon capsule, which was called Endurance. The first time this Dragon capsule was ever flown. Uh, now, this crew consists of NASA astronaut Raja Jari, uh, Thomas Marshburn, and Kayla Barron, and ESA astronaut Matthias Mura from Germany. They have since docked to the International Space Station, where they start their 165-day planned stay on board the station. Now, it really is worth checking out the video of the launch because you may remember the inspiration for launch where we got a view from inside the capsule and they were kind of losing their minds a little bit and getting very excited. Well, <laughs> these guys couldn't be any further removed from that. <laughs> they they just looked so chill and barely moved. It was classic NASA astronaut stuff where they just kind of like, yeah, we're going to space. Don't care. Look on their faces. It was amazing. Heart rate of 70. Heart rate of <laughs> yeah. two. Yeah. Almost dead. It's almost like they're professionals or something. Right? Right? <laughs> However, uh, their first week on board the station will likely be remembered as being quite chaotic. Uh, it started the day uh, before they docked where the International Space Station had to perform a maneuver to avoid a piece of debris from a defunct Bangyun 1C weather satellite destroyed in 2007 by a Chinese anti-satellite missile test, which exploded into more than 3,500 pieces of debris, many of which are still in orbit. To avoid this collision, the Russian Progress Supply spacecraft, which was docked at the space station, uh, fired its rockets for over six minutes to raise its orbit by 1.2 kilometers. Now, you would think that the result of that Chinese satellite missile test would make the rest of the world realize it's a bad idea to blow things up in space when you're sending astronauts, cosmonauts, and taikonauts up into orbit. But this week, something very strange has happened. On the morning, or strange or frustrating, I don't know what the correct term is. Anyway, on the morning of 15th of November, the seven astronauts on board the station were woken up and forced to get back into their respective spacecraft as the space station passed uncomfortably close to a cloud of space debris, which it then continued to make passes of every 90 minutes. Now, it turned out that Russia had conducted a test of a direct ascent anti-satellite missile against one of its own satellites. You may have seen this referred to as ASAT online. There's a lot of talk about ASAT on Twitter and all over the place. This has put over 15,000 pieces of trackable orbital debris and hundreds of thousands of smaller pieces into orbit. And it's fairly obvious that this is dangerous to both the astronauts and other assets in space. The NASA administrator, Bill Nelson, has released a statement in which he has said he is outraged by this irresponsible and destabilizing action. With its long and storied history in human spaceflight, it is unthinkable that Russia would endanger not only the American and international partners on the ISS, but also their own cosmonauts. This isn't good, is it? No, um... 
the details aren't, you know, are kind of murky right now, but it apparently Roscosmos, they, they claim Roscosmos claims that they were not aware of the test either. So you've got to hope so. You've got to assume yeah, that's true. I'm hoping that's true. Um, so yeah, I guess, uh, the Russian military, uh, went in on this and, uh, that's horrifying. Uh, having even though I I am a former member of the military, I it's my personal belief space should not be used as a uh, as a war a war zone at all. I like the idea of space for peaceful purposes. So uh, yeah, this is really horrifying to me. I didn't sleep much that night because it just was like, why you know why is this happening? I hate to go down this path in my mind because there's no use, but. You know, I kept thinking of like really dark reasons. That's all I have to say. Yeah, it doesn't make sense to me. And uh, yeah, I don't really feel there's too much to say, is there? But this, 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 it just is awful. It's just not good. And this space junk issue certainly isn't going away. So, what we have done is we have confirmed an interview with a space junk expert, which will be coming up in a future episode of the podcast to find out the full extent of of what's going on up there and how much of a problem it is. But clearly, these kind of things do create problems, big problems. Yeah, absolutely. In more positive news, uh, a ceremony has taken place at Kennedy Space Center to induct three more people into the Astronaut Hall of Fame. Michael Lopez Alegria, Pam Melroy, and Scott Kelly have become the 100th, 101st, and 102nd astronauts to enter the hall. And this ceremony comes two years after they were chosen for the honor. Lopez Alegria has logged more than 257 days off the planet on four missions and retains the record for the most cumulative times on spacewalks by an American at 67 hours and 40 minutes for over 10 different spacewalks. He is also scheduled to go back to space as the commander of the Axiom 1 mission in February 2022, so not very long from now. Nope. That's awesome. It is a commercial spaceflight trip to the ISS using the SpaceX Crew Dragon capsule. Pam Melroy is now the deputy administrator of NASA, but flew three missions and became the second woman to pilot and then command a space mission. Scott Kelly had four flights and currently holds the record for the longest spaceflight mission by a U.S. astronaut spending pretty much a full year in space on his final flight. All are three very worthy additions to the Hall of Fame. Yeah. Is uh, Lopez Allegra going to become the first Hall of Famer to go back to space as a Hall of Famer? I don't know. I I couldn't find that out, but I'm assuming so. I think so. I I haven't heard of anybody else going to space after they got inducted because... A lot of the earlier people who got inducted were, you know, Apollo astronauts, and most of them didn't go back to space afterwards. Yeah. Except, well, yeah, after they got inducted, they didn't go back to space. So that's a great question, but my guess is yes. Yeah, same, same. Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> I do think it's funny, though, that like one in six people have been to space or in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> yeah, right? It's <laughs> it's almost like pretty pretty high chance you're going to get put in it if you've become an NASA astronaut. But uh, anyway, they're still all great people, aren't they? And great, great heroes for us. Yes, absolutely. Meanwhile, on Mars, the Perseverance rover has collected its third rock sample on the Red Planet. The official Perseverance Twitter account tweeted, Another little piece of Mars to carry with me. My latest sample is a rock loaded with the greenish mineral olivine, and there are several ideas among my science team about how it got there. 
Hypotheses are flying. Science rules. <laughs> I love that. And don't, for, uh, don't forget, I think we mentioned this before, the plan is to take dozens of samples, which will hopefully be collected by a joint NASA and European Space Agency campaign in the 2030s. Close to their home, it, was, it has been reported that NASA is going to spend $93 billion on the Artemis moon program by 2025. This is a total cost of all spending on the program starting in 2012 and includes future spending, which is planned. This is according to a new audit by the NASA Office of the Inspector General, or NASA OIG, on Twitter. They have reiterated that uh, what we already have spoken about, that the first landing won't take place until after the original 2024 deadline. By comparison, it has been worked out that the Apollo program cost $280 billion in today's dollars between 1960 and 1973. And while we're talking about going back to the moon, Northrop Grumman has revealed its plans for a new moon buggy. Uh, they've teamed up with uh, tire maker Michelin for what they're calling the Lunar Terrain Vehicle. In May of this year, Lockheed Martin announced it had partnered with GM for a similar program. So there's going to be some healthy moon buggy competition. And if they need someone to test them out, I'm a great driver. Yeah, I believe that. I believe that. <laughs> Ca campaign to get Emily to uh, test the lunar buggies. I, I think that's a great idea. Yeah, on the moon. Yep. <laughs> Come, on uh, the moon. Definitely on the moon. <laughs> And finally, unfortunately, we've got some sad news. Uh, Glenn DeVries, who flew to space on the Blue Origin flight last month with William Shatner, unfortunately died in a plane crash on November 11th. He was uh, 49 years old, so very sad news, and our thoughts are with his family and friends. I think that we have to understand that at the deepest possible level, opening the high frontier means making possible and ensuring the survival of the human race. That's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in. And for all those who continue to help us out, either financially or by pressing the share button, please know you all mean a great deal to us. Oh, you absolutely do. Thank you so much for all your support. But don't forget, in space, no one can hear you stream. Space and Things has been brought to you by And Things Productions. <laughs>